Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Café con Patuce. The podcast about being brown, trying real hard to adult, and a variety of other topics that we find interesting and cool like... Libros. Traveling to Tokyo. Abuelitas. <laughs> Puppy dogs. Comida, food. Pupusas, pan dulce. Everything. Everything. Welcome listeners to another episode of Café con Pa Dulce. This is episode six. This is Nestor, the co-host. Mark can join for the recording of the intro to episode six, but she is on the episode. She is out in Sacramento doing some dope-ass organizing work and then traveling to Mexico. Obviously, I don't have all that coolness going on in my life. Coolness, is that a word? I don't have all of that going on in my life, but she asked me to talk a little bit about the work that she's doing with Prop 57. If passed, people in prison could earn credit towards their sentences by working on rehabilitation and education, vocational treatment, and other forms of treatment. It would also slow the flow of children into adult courts by taking away the power that DAs have to decide the fate of children and instead giving it to judges to determine whether or not youth should go into a, either a juvenile system or a face adult prison terms. Um, you can go online, Google Prop 57, get informed, find it a little bit, find out a little bit more about Prop 57. But as many of you know, the current prison population in California is ridiculously high. It's ridiculously uh, overrepresented in black and brown youth, black and brown men, and black and brown women. So go out, get informed, talk to your friends about it, do it. And for episode 6, we spoke with Luz Calvo, co-author of Decolonize Your Diet, uh, a cookbook which has been very successful. Luz is a professor of ethnic studies at Cal State East Bay, and we talked about decolonizing your diet and what that means, um, and decolonizing other aspects of your life, the process of developing and writing the book, and some of their favorite recipes. So here it is. Enjoy. The way I came across the book, actually this is a copy of my sister's book because she's a baker and she's really into it. Uh, she, was, she, she didn't introduce me to it, but I remember seeing a news article, I think somewhere and maybe in like the Mercury uh, and it talked about you and it was one of your students and how she did this sort of ch change and transition over diet and, and, with, and I, was, I read it and I was like, oh, that's super dope. Um, and so that's when I hit up Mara and I was like, Mara, I think we should interview someone uh, who, did, who wrote the book. And so she was all about it. Um, and so because part of the podcast is also just uh, we talk a lot about our relationship with food. Oh, cool. Uh, and it's not necessarily like from... Uh, uh, well, it's from a lot of different viewpoints, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about it a little well, bit. Well, it's so step. funny because for the first episode of the podcast, um, we were trying to figure out how to kind of tell our stories as Latinos living in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was thinking of a... So we, it took us weeks like to try to figure out like something that both Nestor and I could speak about and like really, um, you know, kind of like start unfolding or like peeling back like the layers of, of our experience here and so yeah I, and it'd be organic and it'd be also. organic and funny and interesting and so I was like oh my gosh 
quesadillas. <laughs> we need to talk about quesadillas because I'm Mexican. Uh-huh. Well, my parents, I'm Mexican, Chicana. My parents are from Mexico, Puebla. And Lester is not Mexican. <laughs> He's Salvadorian. But, and so we have this... They're totally different things. Completely totally different, things, different yeah. yeah, experience with this quesadilla. Right. So that's how we kind of, you know, that's how the, the first... Uh, podcast episode starts well, and, it, and it introduces <laughs> us and like kind of like you right. know how we yeah. are similar and also very different um and so we we also so we and then we went we went to tokyo together and so we have this we, this yes. relationship with food and me and mar were having a conversation about like the term foodie right and it's like do you consider yourself a foodie and i was like i don't consider myself a foodie that's a weird label it yeah. has like some weird racial and class dynamics to it uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on the, on the Yeah, I mean, I feel really uncomfortable when people kind of put us in a foodie mm. camp. But then, on the other hand, <laughs> you kind of have to own it a yeah. little bit, you know, because we are obsessed with food yeah. and, find, you know, it's a different direction. But, mm, you know, finding things that are new to us or that we recover or that we reclaim... Um, I think it's kind of rarefied in that kind of foodie way for a lot of people. Um, yeah. I just made, like, I had some friends over on Monday night, and I made them halibut that was wrapped in a hoja santa leaf, and it was so amazing and uh-huh. delicious, uh-huh. but it seemed, like, super foodie. <laughs> so, like, I get super foodie with my friends because yeah. it's, like, my way of loving on them, right? Yeah. Like, right. I'm going to put, I'm going to make a whole day where I devote to cooking and trying to make it as pretty as possible i had like five or six different flowers that were incorporated in the meal oh yeah so the whole presentation part of it also yeah Yeah. but i get a lot of pleasure out of that yeah 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 yeah, definitely i guess because we're also coming from a a background like a working class background where a lot of people don't have the luxury of time you know Mm -hmm. i think if like folks had more time to dedicate um, to preparing the food and preparing a meal. And I guess maybe that's why it feels so inaccessible yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times the ingredients would be really expensive as well, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. it's all like where, you know, these artisanal blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like artisanal cheese, artisanal honey, I don't know, no sé qué. You know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. so many things. And yet so many of these things, like, our folks have been doing for a long time, right? Like, canning themselves, yeah. or right. raising their own chickens and having eggs from their backyard, right. stuff like that. So it's, it's oh, like yeah. a balance. Or growing, you know, all these really interesting herbs in yeah. pots and stuff. So that is stuff that our folks have been doing. Right. And that now we feel funny, like, we get be labeled foodie because right. we're doing it again yeah right. i don't know you know oh yeah i'm thinking about <laughs> my neighborhood in la where everybody had chickens yeah uh. <laughs> and then people would be like oh my god you're so ghetto you got chickens <laughs> like nah like i don't know yeah. you just grow up with them and yeah yeah and all of a sudden now there's this whole I, you know, I have my own chicken farm in my backyard, and I, I, you know, I pick my eggs every morning. It's like, uh, I think we've been doing that for a while. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a big nerd about, so I'll watch a lot of the, like, programming, like, uh, Netflix has a bunch of, like, the chef's table and all these things, and that's the thing. It's the new thing is, you know, 
the ingredients are, are local. They came from the farm that we, we have up, you know, and so we know yeah. where everything is coming from. And it's like, well, yeah, it, it's funny to think that that is something that's completely normal to do, but then the way just the system works is that it flips it upside down its head, and it's like, oh, a return to what's sustainable and what makes most sense and tastes good also, you know. Right. Um, so maybe you can talk a little bit about the concept of decolonizing your diet. So there, I think it's like a multifold concept that's trying to do a lot of different things at the same time. Um, one is definitely kind of this conversation that we're just having of like getting our communities to reflect on what are what has been going on for a long time in our backyards and our front yard gardens and you know how our families have met their nutritional needs in kind of the same way that they've been doing it for centuries and millennia even. Mm -hmm. So one thing we really like to talk about um, are recipes, are indigenous knowledge that have been passed down from generation to generation. And I think it kind of flips things when you realize that it's indigenous knowledge. So tamales, for example, and, um, you know, those way predate the conquest. And so to think about that practice as something that really has been passed down. For another, I think part of it is like popularizing the concept of decolonization. So finding a way to get that word out into our communities in a way that's accessible to folks. And I think when you're talking about food, it's really easy for people to kind of understand that. Mm -hmm. But obviously the process of decolonization is much larger mm -hmm. than just like mm -hmm. our diets, right? And that's our political investment is, you know, how do we decolonize our communities? Mm -hmm. You know, how do we decolonize... Uh, as a project, as a hemispheric project, really, right? Um, and it's not like we have an answer to that question because obviously that's like you make the path by walking it and we're, you know, we're just walking it, you know, we're just taking baby steps now. But to start thinking, what would that look like? As opposed to calling, you know, I don't know what other people use, like what they're fighting for, right? Like... Words people use are liberation mm -hmm. or social justice or equality, you know, but what if we're fighting for decolonization? What does that look like? Mm -hmm. And I think it's just a way of, like, raising, beginning to raise that right. question right. Um, and have those conversations and have our, our people thinking about that, like, okay, if I start by decolonizing my diet, what does that entail? Um, and then how is that kind of impossible as an individual project only, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're so embedded in global capitalism and um, environmental destruction and all of those things that it right away is like, ah, I can't do this by myself. We have to, like, engage politically to change right. that. I mean, yeah, and also I think, like, in an everyday kind of process that every day you eat, so... How do we see the food that we eat? Um, and making that process of decolonization, I think, much more um, just bearable, right? Because I think when we think about decolonization, it's like, oh, my God, 500 plus years of colonization. How do you begin to undo all that? Right. And so when you think about just even how you eat, I mean, that's like a day-to-day -day task that you can take on, you know, and, and try to decolonize. Right. 
And like one thing I will say that I feel like I'm learning from American Indian folks, like who are also doing really incredible work on decolonizing our diets. And I wish I had kind of gotten this in my brain earlier because it's definitely in the book, I think, mm. wrong is, you know, we tend to talk in a Mexican context about, like, the conquest. Mm -hmm. And, like, American mm -hmm. Indian people are like, we were never conquered. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of shifts huh. the, the script a little yeah. bit. Like, oh, let's look at the ways we've survived. Right, right. Even though, yes, we are mixed, and yes, we've lost yeah. a lot, and we've lost land, and for most, like, Chicana... Chicano, Chicanx communities, like we can't even name the indigenous group we descended from mm -hmm. for sure. Um, some people can, of course, mm -hmm. um, but a lot of us can't. Mm -hmm. And so we have lost a lot. Mm -hmm. And yet those practices that survive, you know, the making of the pot of beans, the making of the tamales, the tortillas, everything with nixtamal, you know, mm -hmm. that's an old, old process that... You know, I feel like it's so important to keep going because how many people have kept that going for so many years? Mm -hmm. Like, to lose it now to convenience foods or, right. you know, I think really important is GMO corn for for mm -hmm. us. And now, you know, people ask me, like, well, where do I get GMO-free corn for masa? Mm -hmm. And it's a huge problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where do you get it? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, where does that happen? How? I mean, the only place that I've been... That's GMO-free corn is Chiapas, yeah. you know. Well, actually, so corn know. grown in Mexico is GMO-free. No. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, now, there's been drift and there is some contamination, but in terms of them being allowed to grow GMO corn, no, farmers are not allowed to grow. Mm -hmm. They're not allowed to plant GMO seeds. Um, unfortunately, Mexico no longer is corn sufficient, so they're importing right. a lot of corn from the United States, and that has to do with NAFTA, right? Right. Um, but in terms of how where you get it here in the Bay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So like uh, La Palma in San Francisco, mm. um, they sell GMO free yeah. corn masa. Yeah. That's generally where I go to buy my masa because the only other place that I know is the farmers market in Berkeley on Saturday mornings. Uh -huh. uh, Primavera, which I believe is a white owned um, company, mm -hmm. sells pretty good actually um, organic masa, but. No place else. And Berkeley Bowl sells, like, masarina, which to me is, like, inferior, but I know mm. some people make do with it. Uh, is that, like, maseca? Is yeah, that, okay. yeah, but they sell an organic um, masa, um, masarina, which is good to know, yeah, you know. Yeah, good to know. Yeah. Um, I, because I... I for me, I think it's really important because I was when I when I also kind of came across the book. I was like, "Does decolonize? Does that mean I have to go back? Like, I can't eat pork anymore. I can't eat like oh, you yeah. know." And then, <laughs> the whole struggle that I had with myself of being like, and then when I read sort of how you you framed it, reclaiming knowledge and sort of acknowledging that these are indigenous practices, especially what you said with the difference between American Indian folks and sort of those of us who live south of the border that quote, is unquote. named the quote-unquote border, right? The imposed uh, border. The imposed border, especially from my context of being Salvadoreño, it's like we never acknowledged anything that was indigenous. It's like the, and our staple, our main staple, the pupusa, which I think is probably the most indigenous thing we have left in a sense, uh, that's not even almost acknowledged. So it's, it sort of flipped that switch on for me mm -hmm. of saying like, oh wow, like no, it's a it's a whole different concept of, mm -hmm. of just sort of reclaiming uh, 
what was the, what's been there and what's still there. Sort of. Right. And I think the problem with making it like really restrictive, yeah. although it's fun to do for short periods of time, like you know, like we did like in a week of indigenous eating where you only allowed to eat that. But I think the problem with that is that um, you know it really erases then five hundred years of indigenous cooking, mm-hmm. who's who with folks who have been making do with what's there under the regime of of colonization, right? Mm-hmm. So like when people when indigenous cooks like we like to tell the story like this like when indigenous cooks encountered uh, wheat flour, they were like, oh cool, we could make tortillas out of that too. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's like a way of making do that right. whole rasquache aesthetic of you make do with what you have. Mm-hmm. Or and nowadays in ceremony even, you know, indigenous people make make use of tons of your herbs. Um, that were not present before colonization. Mm-hmm. Like, you go to all the circles and, like, rosemary romero is all big and lavender. You know, these uh-huh. are all, yeah. you know, yeah. herbs that came yeah. with the colonizers. But, of course, indigenous curanderos, they are presented with an herb and they get to know it at the plant mm-hmm. and they find a use for it, either mm-hmm. spiritually or medicinally, where they're going to say, like, no, I'm not going to use it because, it, you know, you wouldn't do that. Because right. it's all about survival and it's all about making use of what you can, right. what you have available. So you're not in... Like, in the sand, you're not drawing a line and saying, this is indigenous and this is not, you know? At least that's what it feels like, like what you're saying, like, not being restrictive. Yeah, I don't think it's about creating more rules. Like, we don't need more policing. Mm. In terms of what to eat, though, what we say, I think how we frame it in the book is, like, you know, there's there's clearly um, foods that were were introduced Mm -hmm. that are bringing death and disease and illness Mm -hmm. and it's good for us to recognize that and and rethink some of those foods I think Mm -hmm. at least limit them or you know eat them in much smaller portions or or eliminate them altogether depending on you know what people want to do but we're definitely not saying like okay here's the rules because like why would we do that that's so I think you're touching a little bit on what I wanted to ask you about, which is um, this idea of food as medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was hoping that maybe you can tell us a little bit more about how you got to that concept and mm-hmm. then also how food has helped you in terms of your health. Yeah, so um, definitely the journey towards that understanding was personal when 10 years ago now, in 2006, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, it was like in all ways a big shock to me, but not the least of which because I had been a vegetarian at that point for 15 years. I was like super like healthy, exercising, you know, like I was like, I just thought I like had, you know, it together. Like then I was like, ah, why me? You know, what am I doing wrong? So, you know, then of course you just go into survival mode and I did what the doctors told me basically and went through treatment, surgery and chemotherapy. Um, but ended up really, really weak at the end, really weak, just like, uh. um, and psychologically, like, and spiritually not in a good place, I would say, and in, in retrospect, I think it was susto that I had, like, this, like, kind of disconnection of the spirit from the body, um, and so a couple of things happened, one is, well, first, like, I would go to the grocery store and it would be so traumatizing because I'd be like, what am I, you know, what do I eat? You know, what right. am I supposed to eat? Yeah, like, <laughs> right. like, I already thought I was doing things more or less right and yeah. yet I got sick. So, um, 
So there was that. And so one thing is I went to a nutritionist at the Cancer Center at UCSF where I was treated, and, and she told me some one thing that really stuck with me, and she said, every meal you eat is an opportunity to fight cancer. Mm. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, that really kind of reframed it all for me. Like, yeah. instead of having this, like, fear with regard to food, I was... Thinking like, oh, food is supposed to be an opportunity, so I better start making better use of it. And then we thought about starting to um, grow food in our backyards. And in our backyard, and we um, contacted a group at the time. They were called Backyard Food Project. Now they're Planting Justice, mm-hmm. and they're a nonprofit in in the East Bay, and they do some really good work of like retraining, like. Uh, recently released prisoners in in gardening yeah. and food stuff. Anyways, they came to our backyard and they they drew up this like really beautiful plan of what our backyard could look like if we put a cancer fighting garden in mm-hmm. there. Oh, wow. Uh, that yeah, awesome. it was cancer really cool. Fighting, yeah. And so it was super. It was like ah, it was so inspiring and like we couldn't afford. I think they would have just come and done it for us. But I think in a in a way it was good. We couldn't afford that. We you know paid for the plans and then we kind of slowly and mostly me just started like putting the garden in bit by bit mm-hmm. by bit and doing all that work myself. And what um, plants were you planting? Well, so we started with the herb spiral. Mm-hmm. Herbs themselves are so medicinal because every herb has a different set of phytochemicals that are so strong. Mm-hmm. So the herb spiral, which is in the center of the garden, I have mine topped with like lavender, which is just so beautiful because it brings the bees mm-hmm. and it's just like all this activity. Mm-hmm. And then it's you plant like the plants that need a lot of drainage on the top and, and then you cycle down to the plants that need more water on the bottom. So I've got mints and chives on the bottom and then uh, sage and rosemary and thyme, Mexican oregano, um, Italian oregano, Greek oregano, rue. So I've got all of these different herbs in this herbs vial in the center of the garden. So that was like the first thing I did. And so then, and then we built a chicken coop and we got chickens. Um, and so then I would, that's kind of how it started. So I would go get my eggs, I would go to the herb spiral. I would get my herbs, just like a fistful of herbs, and then I'd make myself for breakfast like a egg taco. And the herbs have all so many cancer-fighting, like, phytochemicals in them. So that's how it started. Then we built raised beds. We're growing goji berries, which are Chinese fruit that are very anti-cancer. We're growing quelites and verdoladas, which are, like, according to Michael Pollan, some of the healthiest Mm. plants on the planet. Um, and of course, those are like our ancestors know those plants, right? What are verdolagas? Like, let's be honest, what are they? <laughs> In English, it's purslane. Oh. Um, and so it's a weed. Uh-huh. It grows here in Fruvale. It grows in the cracks. Like on our street, oh, on East 29th, wow. you walk up the street, you just see it growing out of cracks. Uh-huh. But, you know, I remember my grandmother, who was from Sonora, growing, you know, talking about finding them and cooking them up, and it was like excitement when it happened, and so I know that that's in my family history, and so just to be able to do that in my yard, it just is really great, and it's not like I ever bought the seeds, I found some 
growing in the cracks and I took them and sprinkled them mm-hmm. on my garden and you know they just go and I just get so many every year. Can you talk a little bit maybe about how you went through the, the process of like figuring out which herbs, you know, just that whole process. Was it your own research? Was it through the help of the of UCSF? Was it or is a it? lot of it was our own research. Mm-hmm. You know, both you know, we started kind of on the cancer fighting mm-hmm. and then as we started cooking and having these memories, then we kind of started on ancestral Mexican herbs mm-hmm. and that's why we're growing so many like really cool things now, like the uh, Oja Santa and Papalo Calite. Papalo, yeah. uh, and then we're doing research, and so it ends up the word Kelitel. Kelite mm-hmm. is from the Nahuatl word Kelitel, mm-hmm. and it means wild edible green. And there was there was actually hundreds of different kinds of Kelites mm-hmm. that were like known and used by our ancestors and so to us it just seems so exciting and cool and like and re-grounding so like when I said I had susto it was that process of like having my hands in the soil connecting with mother earth connecting with my garden the cycle of life and like spirit just flowed back into me Mm -hmm. it was so powerful and that feeling of being connected to ancestors was also really just healing and powerful. And that's kind of, that, that, that experience just really led us to think like, no, we have to share this mm-hmm. with a bigger audience and write this book mm-hmm. and get it out there. And, you know, so, so that's really how it came to be and, and why we feel so passionate about it and, it's just really easy to talk about because you start telling your story and then right. I start telling my story and then other people have stories and then people have memories of like the verdolagas and their family and what mm-hmm. they did with them or um, yeah it's just well speaking of stories when you when you talked about the papalo I remember I'm from Puebla so we have all kinds of food in Puebla yes. I'm sure you know um, and then the papalo is something that the semita which is I think a combination of the pan is like obviously from like European ancestry, but <clears throat> it's topped with the papalo. Yeah. Not everybody likes it because it's a very bitter and a very the, the the smell is just very potent. Yes. It's very strong, mm-hmm. and like <clears throat> I'm sorry, but I, I'm remembering my sister, and she like abhorred that thing. She was like, "Oh yeah, papalo." Shout out to my sister. <laughs> I just called her out. I know, called her out. I love you. Um, but no, and it's reminding me of what, what is the process of colonizing or decolonizing, right? Because when you're young, I mean, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles where it's a, it's definitely a food desert. Yeah. And I, I, you know, you can bet that if they put like verdolagas or a freaking Mac, Mac, what is it? Uh, what is, I don't even know the name of the McDonald's hamburger. Big Mac. The Big Mac. Big Mac. <laughs> What were we gonna choose? Yeah. The Big Mac. The freaking Big Mac. Yo, that was my go-to when I was like in first grade. I, that's all I wanted. Yeah. And my mom would never let me have it. And it was just like, I, I need a Big Mac. <laughs> and so this like whole process of decolonizing and like really con- like what you're saying, like how have we been disconnected right. from our foods yeah. and our and our families mm-hmm. above all? You know what I mean? Because that's such an intimate connection. Yeah. It's funny. My sister and I talk about it all the time because. The, the the cook in our family was her grandmother and she mm. passed away from cancer like maybe four or five years ago now mm. and we t- all whenever we talk about her it automatically is the food that we miss it's like right. yo yeah. I miss the way she used to make the beans yo I miss, I miss the way she used yeah. to make this and that and it's always 
that oh what a shame that we never like sat down with her and just cooked with her or, or got her threw down in the kitchen and it's one and I think this is sort of an attempt the book is sort of an attempt of being like no like right. going to commune with others and sort of learn and and practice and do it in in, in communion right right not to get religious about it but the other <laughs> <type of> communion <laughs> totally totally because not all of us have like the experience of having it passed down mm-hmm. to us. So it's about recovering it, you know, and we can recover it from other people's families and by talking to each other. But, I mean, I encourage my students always, like, talk to your oldest living relative now. Find out what their stories were, what their recipes were, what their, you know, what rituals were and ceremony was it, like, went with what food or what season or how was it prepared or, what you know, how was it grown, you know, because... A lot of our students are not that far from their rural, you know, rural Mexican upbringings where someone in their family still knows how to grow something, you know. Um, And so I just think it's so important to keep that alive and then we share it with each other. Should we transition maybe into some of the books, the more specific book yeah. topics? Like, for example, maybe what just name a couple or one or two of your favorite, favorite recipes that are, and how the process went of, of picking the recipes. Yeah, that's always such a hard question to like to choose one. They're like my kids, you know? Like, um, But one recipe that's kind of interesting and kind of got was probably the last recipe that made it into the book is a recipe that is requesón de semilla de calabaza. So it's a pumpkin seed, quote unquote, cheese. It's completely vegan. Um, And we had heard about an issue of Arqueología Mexicana that had um, pre-conquest recipes, but we had not been able to get our hands on it. And we finally were able to access and they had like really the recipes were not like recipes you could just put directly in a cookbook they mm-hmm. were more descriptions of like you take some and so I was in the kitchen trying to figure out how to recreate this dish based on the kind of sketchy description that they had and um, I think it, it the what I don't know for sure if what I have is 100% like the old recipe yeah. I'm sure nobody would really know but it's just so delicious, um, it, and it's kind of like magic. Like you're like, is this gonna work? Is this gonna work? And you kind of take the last step, and it all comes together, and it kind of congeals up into this cheese-like paste, oh, wow. and it's so yummy. Um, and for our book launch, the People's Community Kitchen Collective—I think that's their name. I always get a little bit wrong. I think it's the People's Kitchen Collective in Oakland. They catered our book launch using recipes from our book, which they then kind of remixed and rematched mm. with other things. But they served that like a son with as like with crudite, and I mean, it, and then they also served it inside of I believe a um, empanada, oh, wow. and it was so good. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and and so it's from the pumpkin seed. It's the pumpkin seed yeah. which you soak and then. You kind of blend, and then you saute with some finely chopped onion, and then I think a squeeze of lemon, and it just kind of all comes together, and it's just like super tasty, um, and yeah. unlike anything else. Yeah, in El Salvador they use the I think it's I maybe I again I always do this I may be mistaken though <laughs> uh, they use the pumpkin seed and they grind it up and it becomes like 
and they put it on uh, usually things that are sweet or like mango verde, right? Ah. And they'll put it on there and they call it aguaste, which is obviously a very indigenous name. Yes. Aguaste. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. So I'm starting to make the connections. Yeah. In my yeah. Mind. For like, sure. Oh, okay. I can see how that that can sort of turn into something. Similar. And it's thought that original peoples actually grew um, squashes, pumpkins, or whatever for the seeds more than for the pulp because mm -hmm. the seeds like saved through the whole winter they're high in protein yeah. zinc they had so many like important nutrients for the I body I see you have like maybe three or four ppm recipes yes. yes they're so good yeah yeah because like they really just like honor those pumpkin seeds you know right which um such a beautiful food and again it's something we can grow and and recover and we live kind of in a, we often talk about like beans, how there's like the hegemony of the pinto bean in, in oh, Chicano I am, culture. I am team black bean. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. oh, and it's kind of expanded to black bean. <clears throat> but like That's our ancestors true. had hundreds of different kinds of beans, which we've, you know, largely yeah. lost. And the same with pumpkin seeds. Like if you go to Mexico, there's actually like dozens of different kinds of pumpkin seeds each pumpkin seed with its own use, yeah. some of which you can eat the peel, some yeah. of which you peel. And so, yeah. like, that's also, we kind of only have one kind of pumpkin I mean, seed that's available here unless you start growing your own. Sounds like it applies to corn, like maize oh, as well, sure, right? Sure. Yeah. Black corn. I saw, like, pictures of black maize. Yeah. Like maize negro. Yeah. I was like, what? And it's, like, not burnt, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, yeah. like, not burnt. It's, like, that's the way it is. <laughs> Yeah, Mesoamerican cuisine is in itself, I think, is super underrated. Just mm -hmm. from all the, I was going through the the, your, the pantry part, and oh, I was yeah. just like, yo, this this is it's so diverse, and there's so many things, and just like, I don't think people even kind of recognize the contributions that is that the, this area of the world has contributed to the rest of the world as far as like tomatoes didn't like what would Italian cooking like. No offense to anyone who's Italian or the Italian cuisine, but yo, Italian cuisine wouldn't be anything without tomatoes and or noodles from Asia. So uh, it's like, yo, that's it. Right, um, right. Potatoes, you know, we can, right. we can just start naming them off. Of just the, or chiles. Yeah. Any kind of, like, Asian cuisine, or you know what I mean? Like, Chinese food without chile or Thai or Indian yeah. food. Like, that's intense. I still part of me can't believe that there weren't chiles yeah. in, you know, some yeah. Thailand or something. Right. But no. Solidarity with all the chile lovers out there. <laughs> totally. Oh, man. I am the chile queen in my house. Yeah? Yeah. Like, I wake up and I make a fried egg and, and then maybe a tortilla. And then I need a chile. Like, I need to bite into it. And, like, actually, I think, you know, my um, roommate, Adilia. Ah. Adilia stares at me and she's like, how are you doing that? I'm like, yeah. it's in my blood. Yeah. <laughs> I love chile. It's so good for you, too. Super good it has more vitamin C than yeah, like an orange. Yeah, and it's heart health. It's just like super good. Yeah. So maybe one other recipe that you would point out? Of um, maybe you want to just point out to my my pipian, the green pipian recipe. Shout out to the green pipian. Um, and that's like if you can get your hands on some hoja santa, mm -hmm. that really just brings it together. And so I'm growing hoja santa in my garden. And it's kind of I'm just starting, but I'm hoping at some point in the near future I'm just going to have enough to be able to 
gift to other people so that they can start growing and we can just get everybody in Oakland who wants to grow it, growing it. Because mine was gifted to me by, from a chef in, who's growing it in the Mission in San Francisco. Uh-huh. Uh, and her plant is humongous, so if I have any luck with mine... Can you kind of describe what pipian is for the listeners at home? So it's a sauce that's based in pumpkin seed is the thickener, so um, it has a, like, um, it gives it a lot of texture, I guess, the sauce, like a thickness to it, um, and then it's made, and then it has um, chile, of course, and... Um, and, you know, eventually people started adding onion and, and garlic, which are not indigenous, but that's part of the pipian mm-hmm. as well. Um, and then herbs. So the pipian, the green pipian, you know, I put the hoja santa, epazote, cilantro. Yeah. Cilantro is another interesting one that is not an indigenous mm-hmm. herb, but it has been so incorporated right. into Mexican food, we can't even imagine it without the cilantro. Um, but my theory on that is it's like when the indigenous cooks saw the cilantro, they were like, whoa, that's a lot like the papado. Mm. Because it does, ha- it's, a, it's a simpler, it's a, papado is so much more complex, yes. the flavor profile, yes. has so many more notes. Right. But the cilantro, um, I think, is, is one of the notes of the right. of the. It's a little bit more subtle, a little bit softer. Yeah. Even on the nose, I think. Yeah. 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 Compared to papado. Yeah. 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 So... Uh, those are the herbs that I'll throw in, but uh, we recently, Adelia and um, a, woman, a chef from L.A., Marlene Aguilar, and I... Shout out to Marlene yeah. and shout out to Adelia, yes. <laughs> the three of us worked on a meal for a fundraiser for the East Bay Meditation Center, mm-hmm. and so we made the green pepian, and it was Marlene's idea to put in the center of it um, fava beans, mm-hmm. fresh fava beans, so... That was like instead of, as opposed to meat, which you might do otherwise. Um, but we were in my garden saying, like, well, what else should we put in it? Like, what would be seasonal? And she saw I grow stinging nettles in my garden. And she was like, let's try that. And it was like amazing. So we made it with stinging nettles, which are so healthy for you. And they add this really fresh, herbaceous yeah. note to the um, pipian. So you can definitely use whatever green herbs you have to add some complexity. So again, we're all about like, yeah, take our recipes, but then use what you have, make do, make your yeah. own twist, make it your own, you know, think about what the ancestors would do and just go for it. <laughs> I mean, and that's so different to like how we're so, well, I'll speak for myself, how I'm used to just following a recipe. Yeah. It's like, if I don't get this right, then it's done. Oh, you feel like a failure. I know, right? Yeah. It's like, oh my God, I can't cook for my life. And it's like, no, cooking is so organic in that way. And it, it should be like a, like yeah. a, you know, like a process. Like, it's okay. Yeah. And I mean, I think beginning cooks, you know, often follow recipes exactly. And that's fine. Like some people, that's just how their minds mm-hmm. work. Um, the ironic thing for me is like I never follow a recipe so then you know like I'm writing these recipes but I can't even follow it the same way twice you know when I'm making my own recipe you know because I'm like always twisting and turning and going anywhere so and the best cooks always they they don't they don't ever work off a recipe they always just have it in their head and it's never exact measurements so it's like uh, it's just like a little bit of this and they make it look hella sexy right like I'll throw this throw this all in there yeah yeah that's awesome. That's so great. Mon, you had a really good question about um, 
just how it feels to be a writer of a of a cookbook and not necessarily come from like most writers of cookbooks how you know they come yeah I basically I, asked it for you but you can <laughs> no 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 I mean I going off that just I feel like a lot of the times we revere chefs and their cookbooks and like I you know I made this recipe from so and so and we I feel like that's the only way to really validate um, whether or not you can really cook. But what I was what I, when I was going through the book, I said, you know what? I feel like I know all these recipes. Like I've seen these before. You know what I mean? And so it doesn't feel as intimidating. And mm-hmm. having pride, I think it just goes back to this idea of like having pride in the fact that you do know this food. This mm-hmm. is not foreign to you. Mm-hmm. So I was just wondering what it feels like to have a book that I mean, it, in the end, it is a cookbook, but it almost feels like I don't know, like almost like we were saying, like a storytelling kind of. Right. project but with food yeah and so I mean for sure I think it's wonderful when people like say like one of our reviewers on Amazon or whatever said like you know I made this food for my grandmother and she gave it the thumbs up and I was like okay there could not be bigger praise you know wow. than the abuela thumbs up you right. know um, and so and then she said and she read to her grandmother you know, our our research about what you would use this plant for. And the grandmother said, yeah, yeah that's what we used it for. Yeah. And so that's really powerful that, you know, that that kind of comes across in the book, that this is kind of our collective knowledge, right. you know. It's not individual knowledge that we're documenting and that we're reclaiming. And sure, some of the things are like maybe a little bit more original and like our own twists on a modern, you know, how do you make this work for mm-hmm. like... 2016 but a lot of it is really old yeah and um and so it's interesting in that way and that it's part of our collective consciousness yeah I think it's like our collective consciousness Mm -hmm. um and that's why the book is resonating with people because it's not like it's more validating than it is like new and we definitely don't want it to be like oh, the trend of the month, or, mm-hmm. you know, like, right. we don't want it to be turned into something that's trendy, because it's not about trendy, it's not about, like, being on the latest trend, it's about recognizing, mm. like, that deep, deep wisdom and knowledge that our ancestors have had for so long, right. and honoring, it's more about honoring. Right, absolutely. And how have, you know... What's been the kind of like how the, how has the book been received or did you think it was gonna blow up? I feel like it's blown up. I feel like people are talking especially about in the it. Bay. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely. I mean, it's it's exceeded our expectations in terms of its reception. And I think, you know, the coolest thing is the conversations that it's provoked that we hear about, and then people posting photos of the dishes that they make out of the book either on Instagram or Facebook and then we get we see it and you know even as we were writing it I I, for some reason I I imagined people reading it but I actually never really imagined that people would sit down and cook um, Mm -hmm. out of it and people are are really doing that and that's really beautiful to us because it's like we know it's healthy we know it's producing health and strength and vitality in our communities and, and and that's what we you know, that's our greatest hope. Yeah. And it doesn't hurt that the book is beautiful. Like, it's visually very, very nice. It's There's beautiful pictures in it. It includes art, uh, you know, great art. 
actually, I think there's some art by Dignidad Rebelde in there, the, who we interviewed in our last podcast. Yeah. Shout out to you, Melanie, for being in our podcast. Um, <laughs> and so it's it's just a it's just really visually also very appealing on top of that. So it doesn't doesn't hurt. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was really important to us. I mean we've been collecting art that we wanted in the book for a long time because yeah. we recognize the artists are also at the forefront of this kind of. Decolon- project of decolonization and 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 decolonization of food actually I mean in some ways the artists and the chefs have really been at the forefront of that movement so we wanted to include them and their vision and then we were just really lucky that the press worked with us and um, got it to get looking as good as it does yeah if I could squeeze in one more one more question. Um, before you got here, we were actually just, I mean, we are in a space where movement building happens mm-hmm. and organ, a lot of gr- amazing organizing happens, if I do say so myself. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's also really important, I think, to make sure that the movement is eating well and eating healthy. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I know, personally, I've worked at, you know, at a union, which we will not name, <laughs> mm-hmm. where, you know, we were feeding our members just absolute crap. You know, yeah. like, and ourselves. And yeah. ourselves. Yeah. So I don't know if you have any... You know. Oh, that's definitely... I mean, I don't know if you looked at the Chicana Power chili bean recipe, but even <laughs> the blurb from that recipe is all like, take this to your, you know, meeting. Like, yeah. we can't we can't keep, like, building movements and then eating junk food. Um, it's just not... It's not sustainable mm-hmm. for, our, yeah. for our bodies over the long term. And so sh- shifting that culture and trying to, um, you know, just make it one where self-care and care of each other is part of the culture of movement building, I think it's absolutely critical and important. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of the things that we say is you can't fight for justice or decolonization if you're sick and sluggish. Right. And so if we're eating donuts and, you know, really cheap pizza with horrible mass-produced yeah. cheese and ingredients we're not going to be at our best and that's just reminding me of what melanie was saying right and she's like you know i knew i was addicted to sugar mm-hmm. i was that's the that's the new number one killer for activists you know what i mean like yeah. forget the fbi forget mm-hmm. we're doing it ourselves and in a sense that is colonization and that's exactly yeah. what yeah the plan for capitalism is right, right. <laughs> I think I could talk about food for hours and hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but do you want to maybe do some, like, are there any projects that you're working on now, um, anything related or any other, or non-related maybe that you want to put throw out there? Um, well, we're continuing our social media presence. Mm-hmm. So we're on Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest, and we find that to be, like, a really good organizing tool in terms of disseminating information about current campaigns or... Um, educational projects that other people are involved in so if people have stuff that they want us to promote we're happy to use our platform to do so because we worked really hard on building the platform for that purpose um and then my plan is to kind of work harder on developing popular education and curriculum around the theme of decolonize your diet so things that could be useful to i mean we've given presentations from you know to elementary school kids but it would be nice to really have like some curriculum that teachers could use and then all the way up to university and community clinics. So we recently did a presentation at La Clinica here in 
through Vail to their providers, and that was really a productive space, but also thinking about how we can produce uh, materials in Spanish that they could give right. to their clients. So those are things that we're thinking about and, uh, and working on. And you all did a, a, a presentation at a clinica here and also at Clinica Martin Baro, right, in San Francisco? No, not in San Francisco oh. here. Oh. Yeah. Um, so, so those are things that we're working on. And I guess just since you're, you have a certain listener group, I just want to put out my dream is to somehow figure out a way to start a MASA cooperative. Mm -hmm. That would be like a collectively owned, worker-owned cooperative that would That'd produce and sell uh, organic GMO-free masa for people to make tortillas and tamales. And I know that there's restaurants out there that would buy the product. Right. So I feel like it's a, you know, it could be a sustainable project, but I myself don't have the capacity to do it by myself. But um, I'd be super interested to support people or work with others who want to do that. It just seems like it's, it could be such a great thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Can you imagine? That would be, I mean, you're in California. I feel like everybody eats my, I mean, there's a huge market for it. And right. And there's yeah. an increasing consciousness of people who are trying to avoid it, GMO. Exactly. For all kinds of reasons, whether it's for their own health or because they just don't want to buy into, like, Monsanto's control of their there it is, listeners. You want to start a cooperative? Hit up loose. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, thank you so much thank for you so joining much. us. It's my pleasure.